I um, was thinking this week about this passage and this sermon, and you've all heard the phrase, you've probably seen the commercials, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And we know what's implied there, right? Vegas is not exactly a moral example for the world. Uh, They call it Sin City for a reason, and it's not the kind of place that most of us would choose if you want to bring our fa- if we want to bring our families up in a god honoring safe environment that's not what las vegas is to which i would say based on our passage this morning welcome to corinth corinth was the las vegas of the first century roman world and i mean that virtually literally i read several commentaries, and more than one made that exact same statement um, over the week. Some, Corinth was this interesting place. It's large. It's a cosmopolitan city. Some people estimate there were 700,000 people. Others say, no, probably about half that. And Corinth is sitting in an interesting place. If you remember your middle school geography, world geography at all, Greece is separated up into two places. There's northern Greece and there's the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And there's this tiny little strip of land about four miles wide that connects the two. And Corinth sits right there at the the bottom part of that strip of land. And it's this very important place because it controls harbors on both the Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf. And so it becomes a choke point. All trade goes through here because small ships don't want to go all the way around the bottom. And they get lift, literally lifted up, and there's a tramway, and they get pulled overland to the other side, four miles versus several hundred miles. Larger ships that they can't do that with, they offload the cargo, move it across, put it on the other side. Today, there is a canal all the way through. The Emperor Nero, a few years after our text today, tried to do it and had to abandon it because it was solid rock. But it's a port city. It's actually got three ports. And so think about the reputation today of port cities, of modern ports and sailors. And pretty much it's the same in Corinth. Even the pagan Greeks and Romans knew that Corinth was a city out of control. They had a verb, literally, to Corinthianize, which meant, essentially, to carouse, to have immoral sex. And we know from reading 1 Corinthians that even the church at Corinth had an issue here. It is, it was, the kind of place that good Christians avoided. It was the kind of place that desperately needed Jesus. And I was thinking about this, and I had a very interesting conversation with a person I work with earlier this week. And it made this conundrum all the more real to me. And it made me all the more appreciative of Paul and his ministry and what he did. See, my friend went to UNC Chapel Hill for college. Okay? And her freshman year, she was very involved with crew. Campus Crusade for Life. And she was all in. In her sophomore year, she chose to rush 
for a sorority. Now, there's a reason why TV shows and movies use cliche scenes of sororities and fraternities. And those cliches are real in many, many ways. She told me that most weekends she was the only person not, and I quote, blackout drunk, end quote. 18, 19. So why, I asked her, so what's the draw? Why did you go there? Why did you join this sorority? And she told me that she was there for one very simple reason. She was on mission. She wanted to be a light in the darkness to share Jesus with these girls. Now, i got to be honest. I am the parent of two college-age and one high school child, and I don't think that that's exactly the choice I would want them to make. But at the same time, I was so totally impressed by what she was trying to accomplish and by her dogged determination because she told me one other thing. She said, if you weren't on the inside, they weren't listening to you. In the world, but not of it. And she so desperately wanted to share Jesus with these girls that she made a conscious choice to literally live where they lived. And I've been thinking a lot about mission and the calling of God since that conversation I still don't think I'd want my kids in that environment, if I'm honest. Um, but I am asking myself, what kind of foundation am I setting? What am I willing to give up in order to do what God wants me to do? And what are the realities that are faced by a person who is ministering for God in this way? President of a seminary, a college in Liberia. And so this week, as we come to Acts 18... I want us to take a step back and look at Paul as a minister of the gospel. Paul as someone, even in difficulties, who keeps ministering. How is he doing this? What does he go through? And what does he need in the day today? So, today we are in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. I'm reading from the NLT today because I really want to capture the essence of the emotion of this episode. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince Jews and Greeks alike. After Silas and after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testifies to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust off from his clothes and said, "Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent from now on." I will go preach to the Gentiles. Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, 
and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you, attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or serious crime, I would have a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. Then he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your words to us, for the witness of a man like Paul, a willingness to go to a place that most of us would want nothing to do with. And I pray this morning we would see a little bit more sort of behind the curtain of what those who minister your gospel are going through and need. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you notice it in today's passage or not, but I really got the sense that when Paul goes to Corinth, he's worn out. He is um, on, the clo- on the verge of what we call today ministry burnout. He seems tired and a bit defeated, but he's also unwilling to give up, even on a place like Corinth. I mean, think about what has happened to him over the last several chapters in Acts thrown out of city after city after city, and finally he gets to a civilized place like Athens, and he gets laughed at. And virtually no one believes. And now he's in Corinth, and literally in town, every place you're at, he can look up, and 1,900 feet above him on the top of the hill is the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. How could he not be just a little bit discouraged after all of that? But still he continues to minister. And I believe that we're going to see at least three reasons today on why he can keep doing what God has called him to do from this passage. And I think first what we need to remember is that Paul has a firm foundation. And sometimes we are tempted to think of spiritual leaders that we have as sort of spiritual superheroes. And I feel like as I look to this passage today, I have this interesting position. My training is to be a minister. My job is to work for a publisher. I come here and I preach I have been an elder, and I sort of straddle two worlds, inside and outside of it. And so I think that perhaps that's made me sensitive to Paul's plight uh, today, 
But I hope that we'll see a little bit of what it means to be someone who's a minister. Paul is not some sort of spiritual superhero, and we certainly don't see that kind of idea presented in Scripture. In fact, I think our passage today shows it. Look, Paul isn't an uber-talented spiritual independent contractor who can just go do whatever he wants, wherever he wants. But even then, he's in a new city, a foreign city, a pagan city, separated from his support team, and he doesn't attempt to minister on his own. He finds friends. And this is what we see immediately at the beginning of our passage today. Aquila and Priscilla, Jews recently kicked out of Rome, as as we heard a few weeks ago, because of the edict of Claudius. All Jews out because you're arguing about Jesus. And Aquila and Priscilla are apparently caught up and expelled at that time. Aquila is from the east, but that's where they had lived. And these believers are a crucial support for Paul in his ministry. He needs them. It seems, from what we read in other passages, uh, that Silas remained in Athens for a time, and Timothy has been sent back to Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 3. And so Paul is alone. And Paul reminds the Corinthian believers about how his ministry in Corinth started. If you read in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 to 4, this is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and preaching were very plain. Look, Paul is not Mr. Charisma, and he's not at the top of his game. Not some spiritual rock star with the best sermons. He was alone, and he needed help, and Aquila and Priscilla took him in and became his friends. And we're going to learn more about them next week, but suffice to to say, they became his trusted co-workers. Verse 3 indicates that Paul stays with them, lives with them, becomes part of their business as tent makers, probably as leather workers, making all kinds of things not just tents. And then, in verse 5, Silas and Timothy come back. And this is also important. His support staff, his companions are back, and there's a change in what happens with his ministry when they return. We also see other people along the way. Titius Justus gives his home to be a place of meeting. And many of us, most of us, we work jobs where we're in fairly regular contact with our peers, with others who do similar things, or we work together as part of a team to get things done, or we interact with others. But being in ministry is often not like that. You are often alone. Most churches in this country are not much bigger than this. About 80 people is the average size. 
And so you can be pretty isolated when you're a minister, and you're the one that everyone else comes to with cares and concerns. You're the one that's supposed to have it all together, have all the right answers, and it's pretty easy to forget until we're forced to confront the guy who's the president of a college in Liberia whose wife has a stroke and he doesn't have a vehicle to get anywhere. President of a college. And we all need the support of friends because we all have good days and bad and we all have flaws. And Aquila and Priscilla show themselves to be the kinds of friends that Paul needs exactly when he needs them. They provide a support network. And so do Silas and Timothy. And together, this is the second part of this firm foundation, they provide something else that's crucial to Paul's ministry, something we just saw in Tim's all-in video. They provide finances. Most of the time, we do not like to hear churches talking about money. We get nervous, and we hang on to our wallets, right? And look, we have good reasons for this because we've all seen and heard the spiritual scams. We've all heard the TV preachers who are raising $50 million because God told them they need a new jet to do ministry, right? It's not unreasonable for us to ask questions. But if we look closer at today's passage, you're going to notice something. When Paul gets to Corinth, what's the first thing he does? He go finds a job. He doesn't go to the synagogue first. He goes to the market. Ministry requires income. It just does. And we have this lo- weird love-hate relationship with money. We all want more of it, but we don't want to have ministry tainted by it somehow. But here's the truth. Ministry requires money to make it possible. People have to eat. There needs to be a gathering place, and the lights have to go on, and we would appreciate it if on a day where we're going to get a blizzard that it's warm, right? Leaders need to have the freedom to lead, to care for the church, and we see that in this passage today. You see, God works no matter what, but finances matter because it They influence our ability to carry out God's mission. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. What does Paul do? Each Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. But he's working full time with Aquila and Priscilla, and he doesn't stop ministering, but the amount that he can minister is necessarily affected by his financial situation. When Silas and Timothy come back, he goes full time preaching the gospel. Why? Philippians 4 seems to indicate that the church there sent Paul funds so that he could keep doing what he was doing. In other words, because he didn't have to work a full-time job, he was able to devote himself, quote, exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 5. So, As much as we don't like to think about it or talk about it, a firm foundation for ministry requires both friends, that network of people, and it requires finances. Those 
things that allow the person doing the ministry to continue doing what God has called them to do. Second, we see in this passage that the person doing ministry has to have faithful actions. The best foundation in the world doesn't matter if you don't put up walls. My grandfather, who just died last night, um, built houses on the side. And in Plainfield, right by Louis Joliet Mall, there's about five or six houses that look all about the same, including the one that my grandmother, who is 100, still lives in. And they all look the same because my grandfather built them with my dad um, on the weekends when, uh, when my dad was about 12. And the foundation doesn't matter if the walls don't get put up, Right? And ministry is the same way, whether you're in the mood to do it or not. And let me tell you, my dad talks about the stories, and he didn't want to go after school to put up walls or on all weekends, but he did it. Whether you want to keep going or you're discouraged, you have to act. And so what does Paul do? First, Paul preaches. Part-time, full-time, Paul preaches Christ. This is the first thing that a minister does. You see, the minister serves. He serves the people, yes, but first, they serve God. It is always God who is at the center. Jesus is at the center of Paul's preaching. Not how to live a better life, not how to get along or feel better or about ourselves, not even how to endure hardship. All of those things are important. All of those things Paul talks about. But none of those things is central to what Paul preaches. Jesus is. And that's what we read throughout Acts. And it's what Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2. To be a faithful minister of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Everything begins and ends with Jesus. With rightly dividing the word of truth. Because this is God's record of love for us. And this is how we know what God is like and what he's done for us. That's where Paul starts. That's central to what he, how he ministers and how he spends his time. But that's the beginning. Next, he, preach, he protects. In this passage, we don't see Paul making an eloquent defense of the faith. And we don't see him step in between an angry crowd and believers. Or do we? Look at verse 6 again. It's an interesting thing. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will preach to the Gentiles. Then, verse 7, he left and went to the home of Thaddeus Justice. Next door. Honestly, this, to me, mostly sounds like Paul's mad, right? exasperated even, at the members of the synagogue. And I think he is. I think that this also points out why friends are important. Um, Sometimes we get really mad, and we need somebody to talk us down, right? (laughs) Get us to breathe and to see more clearly. And Paul is hot at this point. Shaking the dust off is not a benign thing. This was a way to show complete separation from someone in in the ancient world. I mean, think about this. It's dusty everywhere 
everyone walks. Most of the roads aren't paved. And, and Jesus tells the disciples in Luke 9 and 10, when they are not accepted in a town or a house, to shake the dust off and go on. It's not a new idea. In Nehemiah 5, there is this time of famine. And the Jewish people who have come back from exile are in dire straits. They're borrowing money to survive. They're selling off land and children into slavery because things are so bad. That's how bad it is for them. And you know who is thumbing them under? It's the wealthier Jews. It's not a foreign occupier. And Nehemiah confronts them about the situation and about the interest being charged. And they promise, okay, we're going to give back the lands and we're going to stop charging interest. And this is what Nehemiah says in in Nehemiah 5, verses 12b and 13. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out their houses and possessions to anyone who does not keep their promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Look, it's not exactly the same scenario, but you get the picture. Paul is not messing around. This is a gesture of righteous indignation, and it indicates the consequences for failing to listen. But how is it protection? We see it when we take that together with the words that he says, that, that their blood is on their own heads. And what Paul is doing here is evoking Ezekiel. If you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 9. He is doing something that everyone in the synagogue he's, are going to know. And this is what Ezekiel 33 says. Once again, a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, give your people this message. When I bring an army against a country, the people of that land choose one of their own to be a watchman. When the watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then, if those who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it is their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm but ignored it, so the responsibility is theirs. If they had listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the people... He is responsible for their captivity. They will die in their sins, but I will hold the watchmen responsible for their deaths. Now, son of man, I am making you a watchman for the people of Israel. Therefore, listen to what I say and warn them for me. If I announce that some wicked people are sure to die and you fail to tell them to change their ways, then they will die in their sins and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. But if you warn them to repent and they don't repent, they will die in their sins, but you will have, you will have saved yourself. Some translations Literally, their blood will be on their own hands. What Paul is doing here is saying, I am taking the part of the watchman in Ezekiel, and I am trying to protect you, and you are refusing to listen, and it's on your own heads. Part of preaching, of proclaiming God's message to people who don't want to hear precisely 
hear it precisely, is to protect them. And the consequences, to protect them from the consequences of not following. That's part of the job of protection. But beyond this, Paul protects this new flock by taking them out from the situation, out from the synagogue, where they're going to continually endure abuse. And we know that at least a few of the Jews and God-fearers had converted. And Titius, he lives next door to the synagogue. He says, you can have my house. And Paul takes them there. He doesn't take them very far, right? Leader of the synagogue, Crispus goes with him and his entire family. They need to be protected. So Paul takes them out to protect them. But that protection doesn't mean isolation, because he goes next door, right? His mission isn't over, it just shifts from a ministry aimed at Jews to one aimed at Gentiles, but he doesn't stop ministering. He doesn't stop proclaiming. He doesn't stop protecting. He perseveres. He doesn't stop ministering because of opposition, and he doesn't stop when his own people reject him again. He keeps going. Verse 8 tells us that many believed and were baptized. Verse 11 says he stayed for a year and a half, by far the longest stop we've seen so far in Acts. And he's once again brought up before authorities. And also it seems in verse 18 that he stays some months after or some time after those 18 months. Honestly, if it was me and I had to deal with that everything that Paul's dealing with, I think I would have said, okay, I'm done. And he doesn't do that. He perseveres. And often the people who minister toil away in obscurity in small towns and small churches, unknown, faithfully ministering to the people of God. And they know they're never going to see their name in lights. And they're never going to get that book deal or be on the radio. But day in and day out, they're faithful. They face adversity. People getting upset and leaving. Sickness and tragedy. People falling away from faith. A lack of growth. A lack of finances. And still they persevere. If we read through First and Second Corinthians, the letters Paul wrote to this church, we catch a glimpse of what he went through and what many others go through to minister to God's people. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we, we catch a glimpse of, what Paul, of how Paul puts it. Verse 3, We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. 
We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we, have spirit, we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing and yet have everything. And that is what the minister does. How does Paul maintain this life of faithful action? How does he constantly preach and protect and persevere in spite of everything? I believe it's because he follows God's call on his life. And following God's call is something of a loaded phrase. The word calling gets used and abused in lots of different ways. We hear people say, I feel called to. I don't feel called to. As if feelings were the main driver. And, and one of my, my uh, favorite ways that I hear this is in decidedly secular circles, people talk about being called to do something. And it always seems weird to me to hear people speak of what they do as a calling when they are in no sense religious and have little time for God, I always want to ask, who's calling you exactly? And how do you know? Let me be clear. I am absolutely not saying that non-ministerial jobs are somehow unimportant, second class, or otherwise inferior to the calling to minister to God's people. That's not true. But our passage today is at the very least an indicator of this. I mean, Paul's tent making, leather work, isn't unholy because it's not ministry. In fact, Jewish rabbis, there were rules. They were not allowed to profit from being a rabbi, and so they had to get other jobs. But, as much as Paul is following that that tradition, he also makes it clear... That in other passages, that it's not wrong to earn money for being a minister, for ministering to the gospel. The, the issue is not holiness of this particular job broadly understood, but it is in a more narrow sense. There is a sense in which the calling for those in ministry is somehow distinct. It's different. Honestly, I don't know exactly how that works. But let's think back over what we learned just about Paul, setting aside everyone else, but just about Paul, what we've learned about him in Acts. In chapter 9, he's confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we read, Saul is my chosen instrument to to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's chapter 9, verse 16. But you know who gets that? description, it's not Paul. It's Ananias who gets told that. And Ananias gets the scope and the specificity of Paul's calling. And notice too that that calling is is to a mission, not a specific place and time. Chapter 13, God calls Paul and Barnabas from the church at Antioch of Syria to be separated out for the work that he has set for them. Again, the calling doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it doesn't happen to Paul alone. It happens to the leadership of the church. The Holy Spirit says to the entire leadership of the church, you set aside these two for 
for this. In chapter 16, two times Paul is prevented by, by the Holy Spirit from going somewhere. And only then does he receive the Macedonian call in a vision. He basically is trying to go in the opposite direction of where God wants him to go, and that's when he gets the Macedonian call. Only when he's doing the thing he's not supposed to be doing at that time. When he gets to Macedonia, he establishes the church in Philippi. It's not a man, the man from his vision, who is his first convert. It's Lydia. So calling doesn't always look the way we think about it or the way that we think it should, and it usually doesn't work itself out in the way we expect, and it's certainly not a solo gig. In our passage today, we see a different sort of calling. Jesus comes to Paul with a specific message, a specific call in verse 9, right? What does he say to Paul? He says, Sorry, I, I might, the, one I, the Bible I used when I was studying had red letter and this one doesn't. And so um, it threw me in, my, uh, in where I'm at. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. Bless you. Paul is set aside for a larger work, not just an individual call. And it also comes through the church. And sometimes we're tempted to go our own way and not follow where God's leading. And then we get a specific call. Think about it. In chapter 16, Paul was trying to do something the Holy Spirit didn't want him to do. And here in chapter 18, Paul is on the verge of leaving, he's discouraged. And it's at that point that God speaks to him in a vision and says, hey, stay here. Do what I've called you to do. God picks him up when he's down and reinforces the call that he has here and now. And Aquila and Priscilla were part of that, right? They helped lift him up. And Silas and Timothy were part of that because they helped lift him up. And probably Titius and Crispus but Paul needs more. He needs to hear God's words specifically for him. And think about it. Even though he's down, Paul is open to hearing from God. He's listening for God to speak. God doesn't appear in visions and dreams to just anyone in Acts. He does for a few, most notably Peter and Paul. There are others, men and women, set apart as prophets, particularly. But the main thing here is that Paul is listening for God's voice. And you can't hear if you're not paying attention. When you let the noise of the world around you or your own issues and hang-ups get in the way. Even in his frustration and discouragement, Paul is listening for God. It's the posture of his life. He's listening for God's voice. How does he know? How do we know? Predictable answer is we hang around God. We learn what he sounds like, what he acts like through his word. And that's first. Because 
you know, it's not that God can't use us if we don't pay attention. We're going to see later that at the end of this section today that he can. But when we're paying attention, when we're listening for God, God uses us as a friend, not as a servant or a tool. And Paul listens for God's voice, and he is blessed because of it. Second, he leaves his fears. Jesus tells Paul, don't be afraid. No one's going to harm him. If, the re- if Paul's reactions earlier, his anger, what we read in 1 Corinthians weren't enough, this is the clincher. God doesn't tell us not to be afraid if we're all full of courage, right? He tells us not to be afraid when we are afraid. Of course, look at his track record. Of course he would be afraid. But fear isn't the end. It can't rule our calling. Paul himself in, in tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6 that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a power, love, and self-discipline. And that sounds a lot like my friend who chose to be a part of a sorority in college because God called her to love those girls, not to be afraid. And John in 1 John 4 reminds us that about love, including the phrase, perfect love drives out fear. God loves us, and when we in turn love him and others, we don't act out of fear, but out of love. And there's a whole lot of fear that goes on in our country right now. Pick a demographic, an industry, a community, a special interest group, however we want to divide up and categorize people. And fear is everywhere. But what would happen if we, as Christians, stop being afraid, stop being motivated by our fear, and instead lived out a life of love for God and for others? What would happen? We might be brought to scary places like Corinth, Vegas, or Chicago, or L.A., or New York, or Chabonau, or our neighbors, or our families, as screwed up and messy as they all are. And we may find out that Crispus lives next door. Third, a minister leads the flock. Jesus tells Paul to lead. Not 21st century ideas of leadership, but keep on speaking. Don't say silent. Stay put. I have many people in this city. Leading the flock isn't easy. It's hard work, agonizing decisions, preaching and protecting while keeping in the world but not of it. And how do you think, how hard do you think it was for Paul to move next door to that synagogue? I mean, talk about poking the bear, right? Church split. We're going to buy the property next door. And we're taking your leader and we're going to call ourselves faithful and true Baptist church. Right? That's kind of what's going on here. And you continue to toil away with a bunch of people who keep messing up and not in the small things. Read First and Second Corinthians. The culture of the day has completely infected this church. And ministry is not a one and done thing. It is an ongoing, continuous, step by step, one foot in front of the other, two steps forward, three steps back kind of a thing. Because people are messy. We're stubborn and ornery and not always ready to do what's best for ourselves, kind of like sheep. And the last way that a minister follows his calling is to let God work. Paul was ready to move on, pack it up. And God said, hang on, so he did. God's vision was bigger. I have many people in this city. A year and a half, Paul labors, and then it happens again. 
called before the magistrates. And Paul has to be thinking, I can't believe it. Here we go again. And whether ministry goes well or terribly, we all have a tendency to think it's about us and what we do. But God uses us, but it's really about him. And this entire episode, this entire passage has been about God's provision. Think about it. God gives Paul friends when he needs them desperately. He gives them money to keep going, whether through work or a gift. He gets the return of trusted associates, the ability to proclaim boldly, a place to go when all seems lost, a significant convert who will be heard by others, a vision when he's discouraged. All of this is God at work, and now in verse 12 we get something new. The charges are familiar. Persuading people to worship God unlawfully. Probably uh, stated just ambiguously enough to get the attention of the proconsul. And Gallio is an interesting guy. We know about him from history. There's an inscription at Delphi. He's the son of a famous orator and older brother to the writer and philosopher Seneca, who was the tutor to the next emperor, Nero. He's known as an astute lawyer, and was given a prime post in this regional capital. Remember, the Jews had been kicked out of Rome, and anti-Semitism is pretty much everywhere, even though Judaism was an officially tolerated religion in the empire. And probably these Jews are trying to say that Paul was doing something outside the bounds of what is okay, and so therefore shouldn't be considered safe, or possibly he's, we're back to that, he's preaching a different king again. And Paul is ready to defend himself, Right? And then, in verse 14, just as, start, as he's ready to say something, the proconsul cuts him off. It says, look, this is an internal dispute. I don't care. It's not a matter of Roman law. And there is no question that God uses Gallio so that Paul could continue to minister. And there is also no question that as far as Rome was concerned, that it's all perfectly legal. But Gallio was not Paul's friend. He wasn't a believer. He didn't care. We can tell from what happens in verse 17. We don't know if Sosthenes was a believer or not. It's a common name. It's possible that he wasn't a believer. It's possible that the crowd turned on, of Greeks turned on a Jew, any Jew. It's possible that some in the synagogue were mad that their leader didn't take care of business. And it's also possible that this Sosthenes is the same one mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.1. But it's a common name, so we don't know. In any case, we're reminded that God can and does use anyone to achieve his ends, even when they're not friends. It wasn't Gallio that Paul put his trust in. It was God. He didn't even get to plead his case. And today, I'm reminded that people in places of power may well rule in our favor in a courtroom and not be in any way our friends. And God is still at work. It is he that we should be putting our faith in and not the powers that be. Because that's a dangerous bargain. Sooner or later, those powers are going to turn on us. And Claudius, who doesn't like us anyway, becomes Nero, who's nuts and burns down half the city and blames the Christians. Sooner or later, we, like Paul, will have to choose. Do we minister in fear or in the power of God's love. And the ministers who God gives us 
to minister to us day in and day out have a firm foundation. They act faithfully and they follow God's call. And we can learn from their examples just as we learn from Paul. And I'm reminded of that virtually at every turn in every one of Paul's letters he writes, he asks that church to pray for him. And we would do well to do the same for those who minister to us. And so as we conclude today, as it's become my practice, I think it's fitting to end with a quote from the end of one of Paul's writings to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, we read this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.